Father, please would you now open our eyes, help us to see clearly once again what you're saying through this extraordinary tale um, from all those years ago as we see how Joseph points forward to Jesus, as we see how this then speaks into our lives. And in particular, with all that we're experiencing at the moment, help us to hear your voice speak clearly into these things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, are you a... If you look on the screen, uh, the, the bulb is warming up, but that's a... It's a glass of water. Is it half full or is it half empty? Which are you? Where, where, where do you stand on these things? What, what, what is that glass of water doing there? Half full or half empty? What kind of person are you? Half full, half empty. You know, do you look at the, the, you look at the possibilities there and say, look, there's, there's so much potential in this glass. You could add more water to it and then it would be full. Or, you know, do you think it's already half empty? And that is typical of how things go, if I'm honest. And next thing we know, there will be nothing left. And don't say, I didn't warn you. Some of us may be familiar with uh, Gary Larson's Far Side cartoons. Here's his cartoon about uh, this particular issue. You probably won't be able to read the words. Let me, let me read them to you. He, he suggests, in fact, there are four responses to this question. This glass is half full. Top left. Top right. The glass is half empty. Bottom left. Half full, no, wait, half empty, no, half, oh, what was the question? And then the last one, hey, I ordered a cheeseburger, which I particularly enjoy. But um, think, thinking about this question, though, more generally for all of us, a, a, another way of putting the question would be to say, is it better to be a realist in life, or is it better to be hopeful? Is it better to be a realist or is it better to be hopeful? We see that kind of question as we think about the easing of, of COVID restrictions, don't we? As we've just been talking about. You know, the, the realist wants us to realise, look guys, it's not over yet. It's nowhere near over. There's more to come. If we ease too much, we risk being back at square one. The hopeful want to say, well, come on, let's see the positives. Let's make the most of the opportunities to do what we've missed doing. Let's not be driven by fear, but by appreciation of the value of real human relationships and personal contact with friends and family and everything else. Now, the thing is, in many ways, realism on the one hand and, and hope on the other hand are two big themes in Genesis. And those two themes come together in this last chapter as uh, we finish, uh, in particular, the, the story of the life of Joseph and his brothers. So uh, as we round off this series then, let's see how that, th those works. On the one hand, what we see here is realism, death, disunity, disappointment are inevitable, so get used to them. Realism, but then on the other hand, we can also see hope. God brings good out of evil, so trust him. Which is right? Which wins? Well, let's look at both in turn. Here's the first thing then. Realism. Realism. Death, disunity and disappointment are inevitable, so get used to them. We start, the reading began, if you, if you heard, and as we can see in front of us, if you've got it on page 56, we start with the death of Jacob, the father of the 12 brothers. And then actually the reading ends as well. The whole book ends with the death of of Joseph. 
So remember Jacob, Joseph's father, Joseph, one of 12 brothers. You've got the death of Jacob and the death of Joseph. And then in the middle, we see a, a whole load of other things we could describe with words that start with dis, big words that start with dis, disunity, dysfunction, disputes, as the brothers recall once again what they did to Joseph. Now, back in chapter 45, if you were with us a few weeks ago, there was a similar fear that the brothers had as they, they stood before him. And J Joseph met that at that point with grace and forgiveness. But actually, what then happens here in chapter 50 is, is, is quite human and very familiar. Because isn't this how it often goes when there's been a, a proper, painful falling out among people who were previously close? among family members or, or a married couple or between close friends, you know, some great breach of trust. And the issue has been discussed and the issue has been addressed and there's been words of apology and actions that show real repentance and change on the part of the offender and the one who was, who was wronged has resolved not to hold this against the offender. And so everyone's kind of taking a deep breath and thinking, okay, I think it's okay now and yet still there is this ongoing sense of, but did they really mean it? You know, I just things still feel very fragile between us. It feels like we're walking on eggshells. Egg Have we really moved on or is it all going to come out again at some point? Doesn't that feel familiar as, a, as a, a response to human conflict? Well, it's exactly how it is here. Now that Jacob has died, you see, verse 15, they start to worry, well, what if that is the trigger for Joseph to change his whole approach to this situation? So they come up with what is presumably a kind of slightly tall story about what Jacob had instructed Joseph via them, which would be an odd thing for Jacob to do, if you think about it. Why didn't he just speak to Joseph? But he, he apparently had told them, you know, you must forgive your brothers. So they're coming to him and saying, look, Dad said you've got to forgive us. Please forgive us. Make sure you do. So do you see what they're doing? They're kind of being realists, aren't they? They're being realists about the situation. They're thinking this could all still go very wrong, so we better act to preempt that. And put that together then with the deaths that start and end the reading. And uh, it is striking then to think about the whole book of Genesis as well, which began with a, a perfect world made by God and a man who receives an instruction with a warning. You know, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, any tree at all, you can eat any of them, but not from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die die you will surely die and then what happens is that death marks the rest of the book as they wait for the fulfillment of that initial promise in chapter three that a child of eve a descendant of eve would crush the serpent and yet every descendant of eve their life ends in death and disappointment and with that, then, the broken relationships between human beings that flow from that broken relationship with God. In chapter 12, then, we, we had a bit of hope, though. Abraham was recruited and given a mission for him and his descendants. And their job was to reverse the curse that had been put on the, the descendants of Adam and Eve. To be a blessing instead of a curse. To be a blessing to save the world. That's the job that Abraham's given and the promise. But by the end of, of Genesis, what have we found? The family that was recruited to solve the problem and bring blessing and be a blessing, actually, that family is part of the problem. 
because that family too is marked by death, disunity and disappointment as much as the world that they've been sent to save. That's the, you know, that's the, that's the extraordinary striking thing about these, the, what we call the patriarchs, isn't it? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph and his brothers. The, the extraordinary thing is how dysfunctional and sinful and real their lives are. And, and, and as Genesis ends, you can, see, you can see there's still this question then, is there any grounds for hope here? Or does realism win in the end? Everything is awful. Everything's always going to be awful. Don't get your hopes up. Is that the message? And we might be asking the same today. You know, are we ever going to come out of this COVID madness and pain? You know, whether you mean the disease itself and the chaos and suffering it causes or whether you mean the restrictions that go with it. We can get very short-sighted about our own situations here in this country, even as we prepare for restrictions to ease. I was, I was hearing this week about how COVID is affecting churches and Christians worldwide, especially in what we call the two-thirds world. You know, many countries only right at the start of what looks like a much longer, painfully drawn-out process with little access to vaccines and huge unemployment and Churches unable to meet in any way to, to gather together, and they don't have the technology that's enabled us to do things during you know, lockdowns, and, and then church leaders going unpaid as a result, and the whole thing is going to fall apart. And it's a fairly bleak picture, humanly speaking, in some places. And then, and then we, we, we turn and we look around us, and we see the upheaval in our own lives in this country, and then we see it, and alongside all of that, of course, we see and hear the, the pain of, of racism and division amongst our, our society in so many ways, and we see how easy it is for disunity to come among brothers and sisters as we respond to all these big issues, not least COVID. And we see, you know, Joseph's brothers, you know, they, they are the guys and they fall out. And so do we, so easily, so can we. And, and we may well feel disappointed with the church, you know, disillusioned by abusive leaders in the wider church, abusing their platforms for selfish gain, abusing their people in different ways, as we've been, you know, some of us have been hearing about over the last few months. Put all that together, and the overall sense is easily one of disappointment frustration, weariness, exhaustion, self-preservation. So is that it? Are the realists right? You know, death, disunity and disappointment are inevitable, so get used to them. Is that all we can say? Well, there is a second perspective that we need to see and hear very clearly in these verses. So here it is. <clears throat> Hope. God brings good out of evil, so trust him. God brings good out of evil, so trust him. See, here. There is hope even, first of all, in the deaths of Jacob and Joseph, in these details that we're told about them. We read of Jacob being buried. Now, where is he buried? Well, did you hear? Not there in Egypt, where he's come to be with his sons, but very specifically, he says at the end of chapter um, uh, chapter 49, verse 29, he says, I'm about to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers 
And he says, in the cave, in the field of Ephron the Hittite, the cave in the field of Machpelah, near Mamre in Canaan, which Abraham brought along with the field as a burial place from Ephron the Hittite. You got that? You got, you got the specific grid reference for where I'm talking about? That is where I want to be. And it's back in Canaan. And of course, it is the land, the point of that is it's the land that God had promised to Abraham as part of his promise to save the world through him and his family. So you see, in, even in his, in his death, Jacob is saying, bury me there because I still believe those promises God made. You know, death is coming, the, the effects of the curse from Adam's sin have not been overcome yet, but even though I die, I die in hope. And then in verses 1 to 8 in chapter 50, as they kind of do the, the, the busy and run, run around doing all the preparations to get everybody there for the funeral, as it were, there is a, a, a little chink of hope here as well. But, you know, with the court of Pharaoh accompanying them all the way back to Canaan for the burial. And the word that's used is they, they go up. They go up. And it, it, it's repeated a number of times in those verses. They go up. And it's the same verb to go up that we then find all over the book of Exodus as God's people go up from slavery to Pharaoh back to the promised land. So there is just in the, even in this sort of account of a death scene, there's this little glimpse of hope, a foretaste of hope to come. And there's hope too with Joseph as well at the end of chapter 50. Verse 24, as you know, much later he then dies. And it's slightly different with him because he doesn't ask to be taken back to Canaan, but he does say, verse 24, I am still trusting the God who made these promises. He's going to come to your aid. The land he promised on oath to Abraham. Do you see that? Verse 24. And then he says, verse 25, then you must carry my bones up from this place when he has surely come to your aid. Carry my bones up from this place. And he gets buried then verse 26, in a coffin. Now, tiny detail, and we might just ignore it, but actually that's unusual. They don't normally use coffins. And none of the other deaths of these patriarchs and people dying in, in, at this point in the Bible, coffins are never mentioned. And we, we know actually they were generally just embalmed and, and placed in a, a cave or something like that. But no, he was buried in a coffin, and actually that word for coffin is the same word as for the ark of the covenant that came later in, in, in Exodus as they're given this, they're given the law and they write it down on the stone tablets and they put it in this box, this ark. And that's then ready for them as Israel then travel around through the wilderness on their journey to the promised land. They take with them the law in this box, but they also take with them another box. They take with them this box with Joseph's bones in it and we're told very specifically in, in chapter 13 in Exodus that Moses goes and collects the bones in the box and off they go and they take them with them so again it's another expression of hope we're not finished yet but it's the, the next question then is well okay there's, there's certainly hope here but is it just wishful thinking or is there actually grounds for hope? Will realism win through in the end? Or, you know, will it in the end be like England reaching their first major final for 55 years, only in the end to be reminded that winning major competitions isn't something England do? 
particularly when it involves penalties? Or, or is it just that winning major competitions isn't something England do yet? And the best is still to come. Well, the jury's still out. We don't know, do we? But it's not like that with God, you see? That's what we see in that final crucial conversation between Joseph and his brothers that we've referenced throughout the series, verses 19 and 20. The children downstairs studied the life of Joseph a bit more briefly than than we have um, earlier this term. And some of them had to learn verse 20. So if if you had children downstairs uh, doing that, see if they can remember it. Verse 20. This encounter shows us the only grounds for hope in the face of all that was going on then for Israel and all that is going on now for us. You see, Joseph's brothers have come to him again in fear. You know, they're thinking, maybe he's changed his mind. Maybe he won't forgive them. And so he says, don't be afraid. He says, am I in the place of God? And as he says that, just notice, he's not saying none of what you did matters. You know, they'd left him for dead. Then they changed their minds. They sold him into slavery. He'd endured great suffering as a result. He's not saying we're going to pretend that none of that happened. But he's saying that's all in God's hands now. And I'm not God. The reason Christians are called to forgive and forget, as it were, particularly in our personal relationships, is not that there is no justice in the world. But there is justice, and it's God's job, and it's not ours. So Paul says in Romans chapter 12, see it on the screen, verse 19, Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath for it is taken for it is written it is mine to avenge i will repay says the lord we, you know we live in a world where real forgiveness is hard to come by and there is this cancel culture and there's no way back once you've fallen and part of the reason for that must be a lack of confidence that one day god will judge the world and hold everyone to account and wrongs will be righted and every wrong will be put right on that day so for now trust him you don't need to take revenge that is not your job god will ensure justice is done rightly and fairly and proportionately so trust him so joseph says i I, i'm not in the place of god so you, you don't need to worry about me taking revenge but there is more you intended to harm me but god intended it for good you intended to harm me but God intended it for good and and Joseph brings together what we've seen throughout his life here are, are, are a bunch of people they've schemed together to cause him harm and yet even through that scheming even in and through what they've been doing to scheme against him with all their might God is working to bring about the salvation of the very people doing that plotting against their brother do you see because it is through their treatment of him that you know, he ends up being sent to Egypt and he ends up in prison and then he ends up in the court of Pharaoh and he ends up being raised to number two in Pharaoh's court and he ends up being in charge of the food distribution and he ends up then being able to provide for those same brothers who started the whole thing off 
and give them food when they're starving because of the famine. And we've seen he gets there through this extraordinary series of coincidences and setbacks that at the time seem random and deeply unfortunate. And so much of our lives as well can, can often seem to be a mixture of you know, human beings being intentionally hurtful and unintentionally negligent. Isn't that right? You know, we, we, we see that and we feel that and we feel the pain of that. And Joseph says, even in all of that, in all of that in, in my life, Joseph looks back and he says, God was working for good doesn't get the brothers off the hook for what they've done. It doesn't lessen their responsibility, but it shows that not even evil can stop God's plans. He is able to work in all things for good. And where does that point us? It points us, of course, to Jesus and to the cross. We've seen before the links with what Peter said in Acts chapter 2 on the, on the day of Pentecost. But here it is again on the screen. He says, This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Do you see what, what Peter's saying there on the day of Pentecost? He's saying it, it was both God's deliberate plan and also the work of wicked men who by implication remain responsible for what they did. And so although Genesis ends with the realism that people still die and God's people still disappoint through their disunity and sin, there is hope in the God who brings good out of evil, who acts through that to overcome evil. You see, when God looks at evil in the world, he says, justice must be done. This is, we can't just forget about this. But at the cross, his justice meets his love. As he takes the sins of his disappointing, disunited, sinful people who failed in their mission, and he takes those sins on his own shoulders as God the Son dies as man at the hands of sinners intent on rejecting God and remaining in charge. And then the human body of God the Son is placed in a tomb. And three days later, he does what seemed impossible and only a far-off distant hope for, for Jacob and for Joseph as they died and were buried. He rises and he defeats death forever. He brings good out of the greatest act of evil. Do you see? So which wins? Realism or hope? The Bible is full of realism, realism about what human beings are really like, how we really treat each other, the frustrations and sadnesses and pains of living in a fallen world, the experiences we're going through right now, whatever they are. You will find people experiencing those same things through the extraordinary story of the whole Bible story. And often they're the very people you are expecting to be sorting the problem out. But then the Bible points us consistently to hope despite that realism because God is a God who brings good out of evil. The Christian can never look back on their life and say, I have ruined my life. Or even, you have ruined my life. But the Christian who's trusting in Jesus can't say that. Because yes, you know, there may well be pain. There may well be consequences of decisions that we deeply regret and consequences that we carry on living with 
of things that we have done and things that other people have done to us. It's not denying that. But God brings good out of evil. In in Romans chapter 8, Paul talks about how in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. And that good is to make us to be conformed to the likeness of his son, to make us like Jesus. Whether we face disappointment or dysfunction or disillusionment or despair or disagreement or disunity or even death, his goal, if we're trusting him, is to make us ready for eternity with him. Tim Keller talks about how shepherds sometimes have to take their sheep and disinfect them in a massive vat of antiseptic liquid. And the shepherd has to completely submerge the animal, holding its ears and its eyes and its nose under the surface of this antiseptic liquid. And not surprisingly, the sheep absolutely hate this. And they try to climb out, they try to fight back, and they have to be forced back in. But of course, even though they do not understand it, and they, they, they cannot understand it. It's beyond their understanding, isn't it? You, can, you can't explain to a sheep what you're doing when you do that. They're not going to understand. But the treatment is for their good and to protect them from parasites and disease and all the rest of it. And, and maybe sometimes we can sympathise with those sheep and we feel like, I don't like the treatment I'm getting from my shepherd. I don't like it. It's painful. It hurts. It doesn't seem to have any purpose. Never understand and can never understand. But it remains true that their shepherd loves them, doesn't it? And cares deeply for them. And is doing what is best for them. As we marvel at the God who brings good out of evil, we we may often find ourselves in that position of not being able to answer those why questions about why it has to be like this or why it has to be so painful, why we have to struggle as we do. It was like that for Joseph, but he encourages us. We can trust God nevertheless. He is working for our good. So the realists do have a point, don't they? Life is often painful difficult, marked by disunity, disappointment and death. Yes, that is true and we don't do ourselves any service by just pretending that isn't the case. It it is like that and it's because of the fall, it's because of that rejection of God in the garden and we live with the consequences of that curse. But God brings good out of evil. There is hope. His plan to save the world through one family will succeed even when his family fail. And if they could see that in shadow, we know that in full because of Jesus dying and rising. So there is hope. So trust him. Let's pray now.
Father God, as we look around us in our world and in our own lives, and, and in many ways we, we, we are moved to, to despair at times, to question, to, to feel the, the pains and not understand why things happen and what's going on. And yet we know we can turn to you because Jesus died and rose from the dead, that you are a God who brings good out of evil. So we turn to you. I pray for anyone who's yet to, to do that, to turn to Jesus, to trust in him, to put their life in his hands. May you enable them to do that. Pray for all of us as we seek to, to trust Jesus then. To know but day by day how to trust you, our shepherd. Help us to encourage one another, to love one another, to keep pointing one another to who you are and to hope in Jesus. And we pray that in his name. Amen.